Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher. If the 60s and the age of Aquarius were all about the pursuit of peace, love, and civil rights, and the 80s were about greed, accumulation, and capitalism gone amok, the 70s did a solid job bridging the gap between the two decades by embracing fear, desperation, and the belief that it was all downhill from here. What was going on, and how was leadership addressing it? Well, firstly, in the midst of one of the worst economic and inflation crises the U.S. had ever seen, acting President Gerald Ford, there was a whole debacle there involving Nixon and Spiro Agnew, he decided that the most effective thing to do was create a win campaign, standing for Whip Inflation Now, which was meant to evoke a World War II-style, we're-all-in-this-together sentiment. It was asking Americans to do their part to whip inflation with simple things like starting a vegetable garden and turning down their thermostats to a reasonable level, which was somehow intended to interrupt supply and demand. Sounding like millennials eat too much avocado toast to buy houses at all? Well, in the campaign, a mailer was sent out which contained pledge forms that asked people to enlist as an inflation fighter and energy saver for the duration. You signed it, you mailed it in, and you received a win button, which instantly became a nationwide joke. People wore the buttons upside down to read NIM, or No Immediate Miracles, Nonstop Inflation Merry-Go-Round, my personal favorite, and Need Immediate Money. As absurd as all of that is, there was some actually pretty serious stuff going down in North America in general, not just the U.S., and I guess the world, too. Cam, what was happening? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's nothing that probably is unfamiliar uh, with our our folks who are listening. Uh, like we, we talked in the last episode, uh, there's a massive recession. Uh, there's inflation in England is way out of control. The corrupt government in India is having a lot of problems. Uh, unemployment is huge. Obviously, the gas crisis uh, continues. So a lot of people are freaking out about that. It's like, will gas just end? Will the Middle East take over America? And I also think it's worth saying, especially with uh, the films we're going to talk about today, uh, that people are kind of reexamining the dream of the 60s and how quickly that was just... Uh, born and died i think it's an easy rider where a character says that the 60s lasted from 1966 to 1967 <laughs> where it's like that concept of like free love and stuff that that wasn't or wasn't really a thing that lasted all that long did it and just kind of the fact that that immediately led into nixon and vietnam and, and watergate obviously sh just shattering people's uh, ideals that there's any sort of framework that is not corrupt around them 
And I think you add to that another thing that will come into these movies is the forthcoming bicentennial. So mm. there is both <laughs> everyone is miserable and doesn't have jobs and money. And then it's like, hey, everybody, the tall ships are coming. Don't you love America? <laughs> like, it's just like, party, party. Like, we're all going to wave our flags. And uh, everyone is just like, what are you talking about? So I think. with films like nashville and jaws you're seeing where it's like nope nope keep smiling Uh, the celebration's here uh what a wonderful time because when we're talking about these films today these dystopian films they're all a utopia that is cracked you know not many of these are actually like a post-apocalyptic wasteland wherever it's not the road it is a functioning society (laughs) where just the functioning is screwed up badly it's terrifying it's terrifying that that's our bar like is it as bad as the road yeah. and in 2021 i'm like we are approaching the bar <laughs> yeah yeah exactly we are, are much we closer to the road literally? like like I, I wouldn't mind popping some pills and being in a weird corporate like hey jeff bezos please become our magic president i don't know if we're if part of the point system becomes that we can smack them with a car <laughs> yeah i mean so that's true we all know that the hand grenade is the way to go obviously obviously well i mean obviously we're talking about uh, dystopian movies and the trend actually starts started before 1975. Soylent Green came out in 73, mm-hmm. right alongside Westworld. I'm sure that's going to be a double bill we're going to look at at some point. And the trend would also continue way after. Oh, yeah. um, everyone's favorite Thunderdome champion, Mad Max, was 1979, bringing the 70s to a nice little close. Yeah. And of course, the release of the optimistic space opera Star Wars is actually considered to be the thing that really drew all of that to an end of like, we're going to have fun in space totally. now. But 1975 was unique in having not one but two films about the inevitable blood sports that were going to emerge to entertain the masses when society went to its next horrific stage. They were also both based on previously written stories. Uh, one of the films was directed by an acclaimed multiple Oscar nominee and the other came from Roger Corman and his band of weirdos. We're going to get to Corman after the break but first let's talk rollerball. Sure I mean the first thing I want to say is if Star Wars is optimistic, it's optimistic about a fascist police state. So uh, <laughs> they 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 beat the baddies, uh, exactly. Except for those new movies where the baddies just came back I was years say, later, just for a little while. Um, yeah. yeah. So Rollerball, Rollerball. Uh, the first thing, which is actually both of these films, really, is Rollerball takes place in a future that is like a corporatized dystopia. Which actually, when you're talking about things that stretch way back. Weirdly, the corporatized dystopia is almost as old as dystopias because Brave New World, they all worship Henry mm-hmm. Ford and stuff. So th- that's mm-hmm. uh, kind of a fascinating thing because I, I could definitely go into like, uh, you know, the business roundtable was founded in 1972 to uh, change uh, deregulation <laughs> of the corporate. But it's like, yeah, that's this has always exist. So anyway, it's a future. I would point to a 1930s film called Skyscraper Souls. Oh. Super rare. Uh, Warren William. Possibly has that Buster Phelps child in it that I talked about drowning in the previous episode. 
sorry that's just my little 1930s no uh, i love it because yeah i I think that a lot of the 30s kind of dystopias are a little Mm -hmm. bit metropolis even has a bit of that too Mm -hmm. right it's the technocracy big time yeah Yeah, big time uh so rollerball's future there's no war uh it's owned by kind of a a giant corporation everyone is happy nobody wants for anything they say and and at the center of this society is you know the like circus maximus uh kind of thing of rollerball which is this sport um as you say it's based on a short story uh the rollerball murder is it's called or just sorry rollerball murder is what it's called Mm because in the story the sport is called rollerball murder they dropped the murder for the movie uh it's a very short story it's 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 from gq you can find it online quite easily i think it was esquire oh esquire there you go Um, similar similar magazine yeah uh, 70s magazines uh i think gq is much old or newer sorry uh anyway uh rollerball is a sport where it is a, a mix of roller skating uh motorcycles and a giant metal ball uh that spins around the track uh the the star of rollerball is jonathan e played by james Kahn. Uh, and he is just the best at rollerball and people love him and he's kind of the greatest he plays for houston everybody loves Mm -hmm. him uh and he is approached you know he's just a dumb jock basically uh and he's approached by kind of the the corporate head uh to say that they would like him to retire um jonathan starts to examine his own life uh with retirement especially the fact that his uh wife was uh, taken by an, another corporate executive uh, and that he now just has a series of kind of corporately placed girlfriends. Uh, assigned, then, yeah, like corporate yeah. assigned women. Yeah. I love how you're like, everybody's happy. And I'm like, no women in this film yeah. appear to have any I mean, autonomy whatsoever. Think, you, you know what? I, I, it's a bit in the short story, uh, but I think Jewison actually put, puts a much better light on the fact that a really dark part of this utopia is the role of women who are essentially drugged out of their minds and just used mm-hmm. for sex. And you don't see any women that aren't models. Nope. So mm-hmm. you don't know what happens to the women who are not super hot models. Um, I know in the story, and this isn't in the film, the reason they play rollerball isn't just for sport, but overpopulation. They need a mm-hmm. way to systematize culling the population. And so that's why they play rollerball, yeah. which Jewison, I think, took out. The sport is, if you want to know the difference between the short story and the movie, the movie, the most extreme the movie gets is where the short story starts. The rules yeah. of the short story start at the extreme. Uh, it, yeah, they, it's it's much more killing and murdery uh, in the, the story. So anyway, it, uh, Jonathan decides he doesn't want to retire really and he keeps putting it off and suddenly he starts noticing that the uh the rules of rollerball start changing and there's accidents and maybe that the rollerball executives are going to kill him instead of let him continue playing i want to bring us into the short story uh realm for uh for just a moment because this is actually kind of record-breaking for someone to sell a short story like Mm -hmm. um i don't know how often you see like magazine articles now become films i think it's probably much less, maybe because magazines don't exist and have the same place in our society as they used to. This was read by Norman Jewison just after he'd attended a hockey game between Philadelphia and Boston, um, and there was blood everywhere and 16,000 people standing up and screaming. Apparently there was like a mega bruiser goon fight. Uh, when uh, William Harrison w- heard that he was going to have it optioned, um, the agent uh, called him up to say, um, Norman Jewison's going to offer you $50,000 $50, for it. 
Uh, and then on top of that, William Harrison also demanded more money, plus a crack at writing <laughs> the script. And he also insisted his name wouldn't appear on the screen in a smaller type than anybody else, And Norm, yeah. which is like unheard of. And Norman Jewison, <laughs> Norman Jewison wanted it so bad, he said yes. So yeah. wow. that's it's just It's amazing. Wild. If you hear William Harrison talk about it, it's very funny because he's like, they called and I was like ready for them to be like, you ass, you lost it. And instead they were like, you got it all. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which is bonkers. Like that stuff yeah. doesn't happen. But um, so they get the short story and now they have to come up with the rules of how this game is played. Mm. So they sat down and figured out exactly how this game works. And then they sent all of the actors to go learn how to play the game actually which is bonkers. I would assume a lot of the actors, not everyone was a roller skater, right? Like you can be an athlete. doesn't necessarily mean you can perform your sport on wheels. <laughs> that must have been really hard. Actually, the kind of fascinating thing is in adapting it from the short story to the movie, they actually lose a non-roller skate participant. There are people with essentially like Good weaponized God. lacrosse ticks that just run around. And I think <laughs> that it was too dangerous to have people not on wheels <laughs> when they made the sport. And I mean, when you hear James Kahn talk about the film... It's kind of fascinating. He has a love-hate relationship with it. But the fascinating thing is he took this movie because he wanted to play rollerball, basically. He said that the jock in him was like, all right, invented sport. God I want to play it. Godfather before this, but Jewison actually cast him because of Brian's song, which is 1971, mm -hmm. where he plays a football player. And Khan was, a tr like, he played professional football yeah. prior to being an actor. He shows up on talk shows now, like panel, like sports panels on like ESPN now to talk about football and stuff. Really? Oh yeah, he's he's actually yeah, a big participant yeah. of that, which is kind of awesome. And you know what? Uh, there was a thing I didn't know where Norman Jewison said at the time he was a big equestrian guy mm. too. That he would, he was like literally touring the U.S. doing like equestrian kind of like various horseback riding things. So James Caan was kind of your like, your Hollywood jock, really. There's some good horse scenes in this with Caan on a horse. Mm. Not playing the sport, but he's just like really into his horses in this film. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he loves it. <laughs> I do want to get into the actual playing of the sport just for a second because they had them train, I believe, for six weeks in California mm. on like just a regular like roller derby style round track to get everybody in the same thing. And then they added the motorcycles and had them do that. And that's when like the damage really started to happen. Yeah. So Khan did his own stunts. Uh, he said it was amazing and he's like, I separated a shoulder a bit and damaged a rib, but that was pretty much it. I was luckier than most. And then stuntman Roy Scamell, which the stunt people we're going to get into in a little bit because these guys are amazing. He says, naturally, I don't want to die, but take that out of it. It's a terrific game. I'm sure it would catch on. These Jesus. people yes. are bonkers. <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, I love uh, Norman Jewison talks about when when they got down and put down their cameras and the guys started playing it he was like too fast too fast what are you doing you're gonna kill yourselves <laughs> like he did not expect them to play as intensely as they did yeah and then they moved to munich which is where mm -hmm. they were able because they the um munich olympics had just happened and they transformed the basketball stadium into the rollerball stadium because it was the right size for it and they the sides were banked in the mm -hmm. rollerball stadium but they had only been practicing on a flat surface so the first time they get onto this thing with roller skates and motorcycles banked at, I think it's yeah. like maybe like a 25 degree angle. It's an incline, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there immediately it just became another total bloodbath where they had to figure out how to skate on that. And it's just like, this is, oh, yeah. why? Why do this? This is wild. And I mean, I get, I, I kind of get it because that's the, it, it's, this is kind of the tension to me with this film is 
like it's it's meant to be critical of rollerball but most of the appeal of the film is rollerball and so you you see like almost full matches of this game but that was the marketing for it too they appeared on mm-hmm. wide world of sports mm-hmm. they had a full spread in sports illustrated talking about the rules like all these great action photos of everybody in the middle of the game like it was a very different approach to marketing a film i mean it was successful because despite how terrifying the dystopia is in this film there were full on sports team owners who contacted Norman Jewison to mm-hmm. license this as a real game, <laughs> thereby not realizing like, it, what the film is trying to say about a sport like this being kind of bad. Yeah, and there's a, a very fun story that when filming wrapped, the stuntmen and actors demanded to play one real game oh of rollerball <laughs> that was not scripted and uh, apparently it was quite intense. I do want to talk about Munich and the idea of 70s architecture being mm-hmm. the future because really this is just architecture that is in Munich. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always yeah. think of Montreal because whenever you go into some of the subway stations in Montreal, they're still from the 70s and you're like, I'm in the ideal of the future. Um, this, like, this concept of the future is Logan's runny, but it really lives sure. in its own sort of like European world. What do you guys think? I know you guys are architecture people. It's very clockwork orange to me. I mean, Munich's an interesting choice because, of course, it's mostly destroyed in World War II. And like a lot of the buildings that we think of as historic Munich buildings are rebuilt. But what that happens, same with Dresden and, and other cities, like you then got to rebuild a city in the 1950s, more like the 1960s. You've got this like very consolidated futuristic feel so think about like brasilia or something like that in brazil where it's mm-hmm. it's all comes together and oh i love that's my favorite part of this film is this the sets although they're non-sets right they really are munich locations um they're really cool and if if most of a clockwork orange is kind of built sets this is like the real life look at what they were in west germany yeah i think i think you're absolutely right that a lot of the reevaluation of this movie in time is partially because it is a very 70s aesthetic uh utopian like world like if you want a conversation pit in your future yes and like just their clothes are like it's, it's a bit like star trek the motion picture or something where they're in the future but it's a deeply 70s halston future. is the only designer we ever had and ever will have so that's yeah exactly yes. there's a lot we love beige there's a lot of luxury in this film and there's to the point where when they're not playing the sport right the sports ground is bloody and there's metal everywhere and then the scenes where he's in his apartment or at a party it's very heavenly um, but I love that, you know, he's constantly drinking this fruit juice. Um, I, I assume it's some sort of sports drink, but he drinks it in champagne, champagne flutes and it's orange. So it looks like he's throwing back like 20 mimosas throughout the entire <laughs> film. And I just, I, that always made me laugh. That was just like James Caan, this like death sportsman drinking, slamming the mimosa. I think the, the, the montage thing, because this is another movie that is like two, just over two hours. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you get into like the montages where he's just staring wistfully at a woman where there's no possible way she could have loved him is kind of 
fascinating to me talking like that that's about Jonathan E and the society at the same time like there's a lot of taking its time with this film that I don't hate but I wish I'd had more to drink yeah it's too slow I mean I do I like this film to some extent but I think and we're spoiler alert the three of us love Death Race 2000 oh yeah I do think that (laughs) informs how I view Rollerball because um you know those two are so in sync they're probably like the most in sync films we've ever done on this podcast it is a little too slow. It's a little too wistful. To me, that is very Norman Jewison, keeping in mind that like Jewison's sure. two prior huge hits were Jesus Christ Superstar in 73 and Fiddler on the Roof oh, in yeah. 1971. So obviously, Rollerball, Rollerball is going to be the next film he makes. That makes sense. <laughs> um, even he, I will say, even he in interviews is like, he was shocked that he was allowed to make this movie based on that track record. Yeah. He said he went to United Artists and they were like, yep. And he's like, yep. <laughs> and and Jesus Christ Superstar is counterculture and I do think Rollerball mm-hmm. has elements of counterculture in it so it, it does I do see it it makes sense and you know I think back to films like Ben-Hur both the silent version from 1925 and less so the 1959 version but like these kinds of films existed going back to the silent era mm-hmm. of where stuntmen died I believe on both versions of Ben-Hur yeah. they passed I know certainly the 25 there were a number of stuntmen who were killed and these kinds of epics where you get these gladiator chases, the chariot scenes. It's just a it's a classic Hollywood mode that is then applied to a dystopia and counterculture in the 70s, which makes sense to me. Well, this, Cam, you uh, you bring up in the uh, on film that you guys do of this film for Hollywood Suite, um, that this was the first time they'd actually credited stunt performers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's like he's got a team <laughs> he's got he's got a rollerball team and, and uh, i think about two of them are actors because yeah you you don't hear much from the other guys and obviously just watching it this is an insane group of performers because seeing the rollerball like the thing is i think the rollerball unfortunately plays a little slow it's a little, a little too long caring about rollerball william harrison and, and uh norman jewison disagreed about how violent it should be he he really thought it should be repulsively violent i think in a death race 2000 way and norman jewison really abhors violence on screen this was Why not the film this for him to make <laughs> yeah. go back to jesus yeah. christ superstar and fiddler on the roof yeah. the remake of this is when they decided to make it into like an x game style thing where like there's yeah. loops and all sorts of stuff if i may there's uh i think they're they it failed miserably because mm. people didn't believe it could be a real game in the second one i mean there's probably lots of reasons yeah. but that's one of the things people couldn't imagine them actually playing this game i read that this the remake is one of the only cases where it hugely damaged the reputation of its original source sure interesting I, yeah I, mean, I think a lot of people yeah. growing up in the 2000s watched that remake with chris uh what's the guy from american pie chris klein chris klein and i think i can't remember else rebecca romaine rebecca romaine <laughs> These are things i know apparently it didn't go super well and there's other like that's the proper sequel there are a lot of other films that this film inspired like death ball mm-hmm. and a future ball i think is one of them like really yeah, like sure. direct-to-video sort of premises based on rollerball that are all pretty bad pretty bad yeah. death sport i think is one wow that's sport wow that's uh, not even trying let's <laughs> just yeah. like put some words together i don't know i i mean i think the appeal and the good stuff outside of the rollerball is just this kind of fact that it's it's like a paranoid thriller but with a dumb jock at the center of it i kind of enjoy that because like i i could see it's like con gives such a muted performance but it is kind of fascinating i think also because james con you know he was the guy at the playboy mansion mm-hmm. so that th- it's kind of the lifestyle he's leading but showing how hollow it is 
and then he's on this weird quest to find this central computer which has all the information great computer it's, scene it's, so it's like you know what you would yeah. think of is it's supposed to be the future of course this takes place in 2018 um mm-hmm. so you know now and uh <laughs> and there is a computer scene where you walk he walks into the room that is the computer right like it's very yeah, much a 1975 yeah. computer Answer. Corporate decisions are made by corporate executives. Corporate executives make corporate decisions. I know we have decisions. the answers. We do have Knowledge converts the waters power. of history. Energy equals oh, genius. Meaning. Um, for me, James Kahn's performance isn't great. The sports, wonderful. He mumbles through most of this film, and there were <laughs> points where I couldn't understand what he was saying. They want you out. You know that. Yeah. But do you know who they are? And that makes sense to me because when you watch his reaction to this film when he's promoting it, and this was a huge promotional tour, he's so dismissive. Like someone asks him, um, what is the film about? And his response is, it's about 90 minutes, which isn't even true because it's over two hours. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he really kind of very quickly after this was released, decries his own performance and says he had nothing really to work with. And it was a failure. If I may point you towards a Woman's Wear Daily review that upset him greatly (laughs) because they said, we saw James Caan, the athlete, but where was the actor? Uh, And he was upset about this. And his uh, rationale was, this is an emotionless state-run future. There is no crying. And that is why my performance is the way it is. I get that. So that was a contemporary interview. Yeah, which I'm like, that is an argument you can make. Yeah, he. the interesting thing is he admits that once they were out of the rollerball stuff, he kind of didn't care about this. He wasn't as appealing. I get that. But also, Norman Jewison said part of the reason they sold him on starring in the movie was that he would get to act with John Houseman and yes. Ralph Richardson. John Houseman in this film. Yeah. Oh, my God. Very good. Both of them. Yeah. I, I, I love Ralph Richardson yeah. as the Daffy uh, librarian. Too. Yeah, he's really good. Coming back to John Houseman, for listeners who don't know who that is, and he does appear as an actor in several films, he was known primarily as a producer, including like a producer of Orson Welles and was associated with like the Mercury Theater. And uh, you will know his voice once you hear it. Like it is it's such a British you know, affluent bravado that it's almost a caricature, but it works so, so well in this. It's almost like the embodiment um, of Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. (laughs) Like, (laughs) if you wondered what Dr. Claw looked like, like beyond the hand that we saw in the cartoon, I think it looks like John Houseman from this (laughs) film. No player is greater than the game itself. It's a significant game in a number of ways. The velocities of the ball, the awful physics of the track, in the middle of it all, men, playing by an odd set of rules. It's not a game man is supposed to grow strong in, gentlemen. So he's the head of the Energy Corporation, which owns the Houston uh, Energy Team, which is the name of the the rollerball team that uh, James Conn plays for. Which I'm going to say this, in a 2021 concept in Texas, the idea of an energy company in Texas... Being in charge of this kind of thing scares me even more so than it would have at this time last year. Uh, I mean, also irony in in 1975 because of the oil crisis. Obviously, the the Houston energy guys are the bad guys. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, almost 50 years later and we're coming back to the energy companies in Houston um, (laughs) basically destroying the world, which kind of almost happened a few weeks ago. So let's talk about accuracy of the dystopia that they've created in our current time period, because both these films happen like roughly where we are. I think the fascinating thing to me, actually, 
and and a tough thing to get into because I'm not a huge sports fan and I was not born in uh, a time where I was uh, conscious in 1975. I don't understand the kind of violence they talk about in sports because the thing that really bonded William Harrison and Norman Jewison was this idea that sports were getting more and more violent mm-hmm. in the 1970s. And I think the interesting thing is, is that did not happen, actually. I think uh, it must have peaked. Yeah. There must have been a certain time, I think probably the 80s, more when regulation. there was all this like coked out baseball players and stuff. Uh, and I mean, obviously, we still have stuff like, obviously, the concussion issue in football and things like and that. And wrestling and but, all that. Yeah, but but the fighting and stuff is way down. Well, I mean, look and at look at the 1990s. Yeah. One of my favorite Saturday morning shows was American Gladiators, where sure. <laughs> which is kind of similar to Rollerball, except it's very safe in that you're in a yeah. giant bubble and you're just like yes. rolling yeah, down. Yeah, and you're like hit with a soft baton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're wearing a lot of protective equipment. Yeah, so it's 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 doesn't seem close. I think the death sports, even you know people go, like yeah, clutch their pearls about the X Games, but it's like there's not a lot of X Games mm, death. That's a good point. And I mean, they also talk about like I, at the same time, evil can evil was huge. Those stunt things, like it just was a time weirdly. You kind of don't think of the seventies as like the violent sports times, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there there might have been a peak of that. And when you were in the middle of it, it sure might as seemed that we were getting closer and closer to gladiators i think the closest we, i think the closest we have today to rollerball in like 2021 is the floor is lava yes so if you want to see how sure. far we've come <laughs> yes various <laughs> japanese game shows That's get closer. True. but i mean you could argue that like you know in the year 2000 we had like bum fights like it maybe it just comes did and we? goes oh yeah I mean, that's a whole well we, we did didn't not have bum fights, <laughs> but bum fights was sure a dvd they sold don't worry that man was arrested so there's yes, a whole he's in jail yeah, i believe, there's a whole I believe thing it's there. the girls gone wild oh guy. that's what arrested development is spoofing when uh george senior always makes buster fight the siblings yes, that is on dvd yeah uh, okay yes that's that's what that is uh don't look up bum fights people i apologize for bringing it please up. don't uh and the last thing that i think i have is do you think norman jewison feels bad for setting all those trees on fire no, no. That, that sequence rules <laughs> <laughs> somewhere norman jewison's listening to this with a tear and he's like but i do yeah. feel bad <laughs> i felt that watching it i was like they actually also, set those trees on fire isn't there like kind of the same sequence in Roma where they're like firing off fireworks mm-hmm. and things? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe rollerball inspired Roma. <laughs> we know, and much like uh, Roma, this was actually blown up in certain markets um, in seventy millimeter. So I don't know. That's I. I would love. I've never seen this in a movie theater. I do think this is. I would advocate this is a film that's meant for a big sure. screen. I I've never I I'm kind of a 70 millimeter nerd and so I I have like a project where I've been tracing any 70 millimeter print that has survived very few have uh, I've never seen this come up I would love 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 to see this in 70 um because I don't love this film but I love I, I love talking about it I love thinking about it and I will say you should it, sticking with this film is important because the finale is excellent like when rollerball yeah. reaches its fever pitch and much like clockwork orange they're using music um not by Tchaikovsky but from bach it's really and the, i really felt like the concluding frame of this film really resonated with me if the middle part kind of didn't to be honest yeah and again i think when khan is uh, playing a jock that's and that's when jewison says he sings too you know he's on, really on believable. the rollerball court it's like a death ballet <laughs> 
All right, I think that's wow. that's the only way that. we can move into our next no, that's, film. That's going to be my uh, direct-to-video sequel. <laughs> Is the Death Ballet? Oh, man. Death well, oh. our next film has five sequels. And when Peter Fonda was offered it, uh, he thought it was too ridiculous for words. I gotta say, I agree it's absolutely ridiculous, but I think we've definitely got some words about it. Death Race 2000's coming up after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Video games have been around since the 1950s, but when Pong was released in 1972, that really kicked off the video game arcade boom. When it comes to games, Pong was pretty tame in terms of violent content. The worst you'd have to deal with was that one friend, you know, that one friend, who was a sore loser and might fly into a rage, but they would do the same thing if they lost at Monopoly. Anyone who's ever been hit by a thrown Scotty dog knows how much that hurts. The biggest complaints Pearl Clutchers had at the time was the same that they had for television. It kept kids sedentary indoors, and it rotted their brains. That is until 1976. Video game developer Exidy had recently been caught up in a legal snafu and needed to retool their Destruction Derby video game, the premise of which found players smashing cars into each other for points. So they did some quick reprogramming and looked to a film for inspiration. Death Race encouraged players to mow down humanoid figures called gremlins for points. When you hit a creature, a tiny cross grave marker would pop up indicating that you had killed it. The game cabinet was all black with a pretty cool illustrated Grim Reaper and muscle cars racing through a cemetery. A journalist wrote an article about her concerns the game would encourage actual violence, which caused Exidy representatives to have to respond that, you know, it's not like you were killing people with your car. They were obviously gremlins. And the first media frenzy was on. All that actually happened was Exidy sold a whole bunch more cabinets to arcades, and after about a year, the controversy faded away. Death Race the Video Game was not affiliated in any way with the film we'll be talking about today, but at the time, critics had a similar reaction to it. Ebert bemoaned the frivolous violence, and he later called it one of the best B-movies ever made. I have to admit, I find it, although absurdly violent, a whole lot of fun. Let's talk Death Race 2000. Yeah. It's like a cartoon violence. <laughs> it's so much fun. I was shocked. With, yeah. It's really fun. It's one of those ones I think maybe a lot of our listeners will relate that we saw in our, our teens, like our late teens. It was pretty ubiquitous because it has kind of crazy rights issues. So it was often sort of yeah. available in bootlegs or, you know, on weird uh, TV stations. So 
I grew up loving this film and kind of took a break from it in my adulthood and then coming back to it for this podcast and for the TV show A Year in Film last year. I know I'm just re-embracing it. Uh, I think it's somehow, unlike Rollerball, a film that gets better with time. And I think it's a film that, so for for this film, for Death Race 2000, takes place in 2000. What, what, not, not a genius <laughs> to come up with that. But the, the world, they keep talking about the world crash of 1979. So I love the idea that Corman and Paul Bertel, who directed this film, are really banking on the world ending within like three years of its being or four years of its being produced. <laughs> they were so optimistic over there. <laughs> yeah, whereas Rollerball is like, okay, well, let's give it like almost 50 years for everything to go down the shitter. Um, this film was produced absolutely because of Rollerball. So Rollerball, as we talked about in the first part of this episode, had a huge publicity campaign. It was a big budget. It's an MGM film. Lots of talking about it before it had even started production. And Corbin saw that kind of opportunity to capitalize on all the promo that was happening for Rollerball, which came out, I believe, just two months in advance of Death Race 2000, and was like, we're going to make our own version. And somehow makes the better version, which I think is a testament to what makes Corman, who is very much still with us as a producer, he's well into his 90s, uh, so wonderful. So the world is fucked. Um, it's owned by a bunch of corporations, and they are racing cars to the death. And so their sport of choice, their blood sport of choice, is really kind of more car-based than like the gladiator races that you get in Rollerball. I always think back to those, I think they were Hanna-Barbera cartoons that I grew up with, where they would be a mishmash of all the characters you love racing each other. I think they're called wacky races. Mm-hmm. So you'd have yes, like yes, Huckleberry yes. Finn in one car and like the monsters in another. And, and like I just think about that and the context of how Hanna-Barbera this movie is that being said it is so violent oh yeah (laughs) but it's almost a violence that's dialed up to 11 in a way that I never felt grossed out I never felt it viscerally the way that I kind of do in rollerball when you can really see that James Caan is like going to separate his shoulder or there's this metal ball that's going to be punched into someone's face like I really felt those blows in death race I I feel um, a, rev- a revelry around the violence. And I'm not someone who loves violence, but I do think this film works on that level really, really well. So they just basically have to race each other. There's really, really famous um, you know, athletes. You've got Sylvester Stallone as Machine Gun Joe. Just about to explode. Like, ju- mm-hmm. they got him right on the cusp of exploding. Government would like it if nobody said anything about Nero. Understand? He hit a tree and that's it. Got it? We don't want to depress anybody, but... Hey, hey. Everybody knows he was blown up by the resistance, you schmuck. Was on television. Oh, he is so great in this. And then the the lead character is David Carradine uh, playing um, Frankenstein. And Frankenstein, you know, you don't really see, we do as viewers eventually see him. There's a reverse Lon Chaney effect, which I really love. But he's, you know, the joke is that, you know, one arm was lost in this crash. A leg was lost in this crash. At one point he says he lost his taste buds in the crash of 97. They say you lost most of your jaw in the crash of 92. And my right eye in 95. And my nose and my left eye in 97 most of my cranium in 98 like he's he's you know more monster (laughs) than man in reality it's all fake and he's actually very attractive and well-maintained physically person underneath this uh leather 
this leather suit, which Carradine would not wear real leather because he's a famous vegan and animal activist, and they had to find some fake-looking leather in 1975. But um, it's just really, and so they race each other. You know, there's um, an assassination attempt on Frankenstein and the players from um, the descendants of oh, who is it? Thomasina Paine. So the descendants of Thomas Paine are going to try to destroy Death Race. And so there's a mole in the place of uh, this gorgeous blonde who plays Frankenstein's navigator. Uh, Much like Rollerball, women are sort of assigned to men and are Mm -hmm. forced in a situation. They're navigators, but they're forced in a situation to be sexual partners. Differently, though, they also get to race. You have two women here who get to race themselves, who have their own navigators, who are willing to sacrifice their navigators in terrible ways. Uh, There is Nazi imagery in this, guys, just as a heads up. So There is one woman who played by um, Mary Waranov, who you're going to recognize from a variety of Paul Bartel films and a lot of Corman's. She's, She's in Chopping Mall. She's really, really great. She couldn't drive in real life. Uh, so they had to keep rolling her car down the hill and filming it <laughs> and you know, show her being dragged by a truck and then filming it from behind. Um, I think I've summarized that pretty well. I mean, it's a very simple story. That's roughly it. Yeah. The big thing is, is that they are also, aside from winning this race and getting to the end and surviving, they also have to hit other human beings for I forgot points, that part. Which is... Yeah, it's never truly explained. Alicia, you, because you were a wonderful, diligent archivist, you wrote down the point scoring system. Would you mind giving that to us now, please? So if you hit a woman, you get 10 points. That's actually the lowest score, really. I'm assuming the only thing lower is a man, just a healthy man. All right, all right, and yes, sirree, a clean hit, a perfect hit, and no pain for the target. Too bad the guy was only 38. Just two years older, he'd have been worth three times the points. Teens are 40 points. Toddlers under 12, which, I mean, that's just children under 12, 70 points. Uh, if you are over, and this, you know, with this I don't get. If you're over 75 years old, it's 100 points. Uh, so you would think that killing older people would be less if I, I'm there If with I you. may, I watched a Please. bit of the uh, official sequel slash remake Death Race 2050. And they okay. they go into it, and I I'm I cannot find uh, Ib Melchior's original story, so I don't know if this is part of it or if this is what Corman intended in the movie. But uh, what it is is that in the future, technology has advanced to the point where the elderly live pretty much forever as a drain on society. That makes sense. Um, so it becomes a Logan's Running yes, sort of thing. and also like Rollerball, uh, there's a massive overpopulation problem. So that's why they so also want to kill children. Because they're like, you yeah. got to stop having babies. So we're going to run them over. So that's why yeah. the elderly and babies are specifically uh, okay. uh, more points. And this comes to a head on um, Euthanasia Day uh, at the Geriatrics <laughs> so Hospital. Which is uh, they uh, the nurses put all the old people in their wheelchairs out into the middle of the road to await them to be run over, only to have Frankenstein kind of deviate from course and kill all the nurses and doctors. Those doctors, dear friends of mine, have been pretty smug all these years, setting up the old folks. Frankenstein must have decided it was their turn. 
It's one of my favorite scenes. For this sure. movie's just so messed up. Um, I think all the different it's yeah, all the different I, ways it's people it, it's there's just so much going on. You never get bored. It's all the different ways people die and like all the ridiculousness where you know like in a almost a soft fashion where you know James Wan and his writing partner sat down being like one upping each other on the horrible ways people could die in a Rube Goldberg machine. Mm-hmm. The same thing yeah. happened here where they're like, what are all the horrible things we can do to hit people? And there's only really one moment where I was like, oh, that actually makes me genuinely uncomfortable which is the the groupie that sacrifices herself to Frankenstein and she wants to meet Frankenstein beforehand to tell him that she loves him so that her death has meaning when he runs her down I wanted to meet you Mr. Frankenstein I wanted you to know who I am so it would have meaning. That part really Mm -hmm. upset me. Um, I was like, oh, and also that's Paul Bartel's sister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I think it's good that that's in. Paul Uh, Bartel's sister and his favorite part of the movie. Yeah, I think it's in there, though, because you wouldn't want a film that's 100% cartoonish when it's a dystopia. There is still biting critique of 1975 and our, our... seemingly unfuture that's going to unravel in a scene like that but you're right it is it's a it's a shift in tone let's talk uh, just quickly about david carradine because Mm -hmm. this was a time when actors Mm -hmm. didn't really make the jump from television to film you were either a television actor or a film actor and television actors were considered lower tier and especially david carradine was playing a character of asian ethnicity on kung fu um you know lots of problems there seeing as he is not asian but he took this role in order to shatter his image from the that because he wanted people to see him in a different way. So this is technically his wrecking ball moment. Yeah. He's really good in this. Agreed. And, you know, he's not performing Kung Fu. He's not even performing mm-hmm. that many stunts other than the fact that he's behind the wheel of a car that may or may not have had an engine inside it. He yeah. There's a mysteriousness to him that works because I've, I think probably in 1975 people knowing that bullshit reference to him being on Kung Fu. And so it works that, you know, and I, I mentioned this earlier, the reverse Lon Chaney, which is, of course, Lon Chaney being the actor really well known for prosthetics and the man of a thousand faces, who is the original Phantom of the Opera in the 1925. And like the the story is that they ripped off his mask on screen and, and like audience members fainted because it was so grotesque and so horrific. And I just love reversing that with Frankenstein's character and David Carradine, which uh, has new navigator the woman he's been assigned rips off his mask expecting to see scars and it's like actually the mask has a prosthetic underneath it with all the scars and just rips off his face and he's all handsome now Mm -hmm. cam stop me if i'm wrong but was this the original story was actually really dour and really upsetting and then corman was like we need to make this funnier is that what happened uh, you, you know what? I think it's a it's a back and forth between Paul Bartel and Roger Corman because Paul Bartel is, if you don't know, he he's a director who, more or less, a bit of a John Waters type. He he was a really a satirist, probably best known for eating Raoul. Uh, but at the time, he was a fairly new director. Um, he had gotten this crazy chance with MGM to make this movie called Private Parts in 1972. I highly recommend it. A uh, little content warning, transphobic in a weird way, but it's that kind of psycho style transphobic. Uh, he was super obsessed with like kinky sex and perversion. Uh, so he had this short film called Naughty Nurse, which was quite popular, which was a comedy. Um, so yeah, he kind of came in and I think he was just like, Roger, I don't think it can be, <laughs> it needs to be funny. Like he's like, no one will sit through this movie it'll be so miserable if it's just running people over so they they went back through it he does say that he actually had a lot more jokes in it that roger cut out he he 
he has mixed feelings on death race uh i think it's very well directed especially because the car stuff is is really tough <laughs> none of the to cars do. were street legal um, so they weren't able to actually no, exactly. drive them <laughs> yeah and i mean you can tell like roger loves no sets obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> just being on the road is probably his dream but uh yeah it's, so it's interesting because i do think the best parts of it are that paul bartell satire that's like a little over the top and, and there's it is pretty sexy which i think he loves just essentially saying that everyone's a pervert so he loves this kind of weird sexy navigator plus there's a driver lot of relationship there's a lot of boobs there's yes. full it's frontal common. nudity <laughs> yeah. they know the audience like that's yeah. the thing i i think there's some male butts too yeah yeah and i mean paul bartell was a, a number one an out gay man and number two uh, loved doing exploitation he never he's not one of the corman people you know he's not james cameron or coppola or scorsese no, he he did not he did not dream of Hollywood. He dreamt of independent filmmaking and exploitation filmmaking. And I mean mm-hmm. him and Mary Warnov are essentially like the Nichols and That's May of Corman. They appeared in 17 movies together as a comedy duo and they uh yeah, so they I mean he's in this movie too as a like he always plays a stuffy kind of stuck up uh obviously gay but playing straight man. Uh and yeah, so it's kind of this fascinating thing because I he doesn't feel like it was funny enough. Yeah. But I think it still has a lot of his touches. Now, you talked about the cars being uh, looking great and the action looking great. Do you want to talk mm. about Tak Fujimoto, which is like, sorry, what? He's the cinematographer sure. on this? Yeah. I mean, Tak Fujimoto worked actually a lot with Roger Corman. He mm. started out with Badlands, which like, good God, talk about a movie to start with. But uh, then he pretty much immediately switched to uh, exploitation movies. Um, he worked a lot with Jonathan Demi, who he'd go on to work with in better stuff. But he started with the kind of Demi cycle of women in prison movies that he made for Roger Corman. Yeah. Which are really good. And I watched recently thinking they were going to be a fun drunk watch. And they I was so impressed. Yeah, yeah. They're, and I mean, beautifully shot. And, and I think uh, what really gave Tak Fujimoto his first leg up uh, was doing some uh, like mm. side stuff for Star Wars. And I really think that probably the work on Death Race is what got him there because he's yeah. filming technical stuff. You know, he's filming explosions and uh, cars and things. So you would, of course, hire him <laughs> when you needed 100 guys to film models of spaceships. Of course you'd get him. I, I, I know at one point, I don't remember what the circumstance was, but because the cars weren't street legal and they, he couldn't have any of the actors actually drive them because of mm-hmm. the unions, Corman's behind yes. the wheel for a substantial portion of this film, yes. which is crazy if you think about it. I think, I think it was also an insurance thing. Like, you know, you yeah. don't want your production sued, but if you're yeah. just Roger Corman driving down the street in your crazy <laughs> car... Though I don't love the sequel remake thing, but they don't, they don't mess with Frankenstein's card. It still looks pretty much exactly the same in it's 2050. It's pretty cool. I really loved uh, Louisa Moritz in this. She plays Myra, who is Machine Gun Joe's mm, navigator. Yeah. And she kind of does it in this Gene Harlow, you know, super peroxide blonde. I saw it as like a, a Gloria Graham sort of yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, you're right. It, there's some Gloria Graham in there. The voice is not quite right. But yeah, you're totally right. She's a Cuban actress who I, you know, she looks so different 
in this film. I didn't re- realize that she's also in Up in Smoke and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. Uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest also being 75. So it's kind of funny that she's in both Death Race 2000 <laughs> and one of the highest Oscar awarded films of all time. Uh, but she's really, really cartoonish. Like it's really like Betty Boop almost. Yeah. Uh, my final thing for you, Alicia, because I think, I mean, this movie's amazing. Everybody needs to go watch it. But do you love it so much because clips of it appear in Munchie? She Strikes Back. <laughs> I was hoping this would come up. Yeah, it's specifically in Munchie Strikes Back, the sequel produced by Corman. I mean, we talk about Munchie directed by Jim Wynorski in the show and I think both seasons of the show somehow. <laughs> I don't even know how that happened. But uh, yeah, this the scenes of this B-roll that wasn't actually used in the film is um, superimposed with somehow Munchie driving one of the cars in Munchie Strikes Back. And uh, it's pretty delightful. Wow. I've never actually seen that documented online. It's only been people who... Uh, myself and other people who were forced to watch Munchie Strikes Back, they were like, pretty sure that's Frankenstein's car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just so memorable. These are things we know. All right. I think that's everything for this episode. Go out there, watch some dystopian fiction, and things can't get any worse. Maybe they can just get more fun. Blood sports for everybody. Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks, Becky. I hope the future is less bleak than these two. (laughs) I just want cool cars. Can we get cool cars again? I'm tired of these cubes. Cam Maitland, thank you once again. Sure. I also can't drive like Mary Warrenoff. Really? (laughs) Oh, Vancouver. That's why. Well, you grew up in Edmonton like me. So you had to get a, you were forced to get a license at some point. Otherwise you froze to death waiting for the bus. It, it lapsed. So you could never be in death race 2051 or. I could get run over if I wanted to. (laughs) Yeah, but you'd only be worth one point. It's not even worth it. And on that note, join us again next week when we look at one of the most notorious exploitation movies of all time. I had to take a couple run-ups to be able to finish it myself. We're also going to welcome our first guest of the season, Kayla Janice. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.